The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Amazon buys Whole Foods. The big question, though, is Jeff Bezos a few sandwiches short of a picnic? Will woes at a fast-growing insurer wreak havoc on China's financial markets? And why would anyone borrow money for 100 years? Plus, we'll give you our quick thoughts on who could be Uber's next chief executive. These are the issues we'll be tackling in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Jen Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. By now, it's well known that Amazon is scooping up Whole Foods for nearly $14 billion, and that's a 27% premium for the struggling grocery chain. When the news dropped on Friday, Amazon didn't even bother to say much about what they planned to do with Whole Foods. They didn't have a conference call. They didn't give much detail with their press release. Joining us here in the studio is Rob Siren. So, Rob, this is the first question that we got to figure out here. Is Jeff Bezos out of his mind? Like, what has he done? This, and this is by far their largest acquisition. Well, I've heard that question about 20 times over the past 20 years. So it seems like every year there's... Not just the past week, 20 years. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. So there is perhaps a method to the madness. There's so many factors, strands coming together and why they might be interested in this. We can just walk through them. First, it's a gigantic market. It's $800 billion a year. What, the grocery market? The grocery market. U.S. grocery market. And Amazon has, over the years, whenever they see a big market, they want it. Okay. The other thing is that margins are actually higher in groceries, even though everyone says, okay, supermarkets, it's a lousy business, the margins are so low, they're actually a lot higher than Amazon's margin. So Amazon can get it and they actually can make some profit. How, how do they expand then? Because I mean, Whole Foods can already deliver your food to you, right? We, we something can do it through Instacart, or whatever it's called. Amazon already sends food to you if you want it. Amazon Fresh, is it they've got going in a few cities? Um, so what do the two offer each other? I mean, it, it's... It seems like, okay, it's an 800 billion business all, all in, but it seems like both of them are already doing bits of this already. Why would either one of them benefit from the other? Well, there are, there are a few things that would are in the middle. For instance, food delivery, food meal kits, you know, delivery like Blue Apron. That's the sort of thing that Amazon could easily do. But it's more a question, you have to step back and say, okay, what is Amazon struggling with? And they're struggling with shipping costs. And if they can have outlets where people can pick up their goods, then they might be able to cut back on shipping costs. So what, my, my, my Prime membership isn't covering the cost of shipping all the goodies no, I want no, to get Amazon, Amazon lost about $7 billion, I think it is, last year from subsidizing shipping. Because, uh, again, with the long-term idea with Bezos, he's interested in getting goods to consumers as fast and as cheaply as possible. Yeah, but I mean, $7 billion doesn't sound like a huge amount for a company that, what, its revenue is, what, 135 $136 billion last year? $7 billion for a company that is looking long-term and doesn't seem to care about profit doesn't strike me as a problem. Well, how much profits did Amazon have last year? I don't year? think they care about profits, do they? <laughs> what, what, did, what did they earn? They had about $2 billion of profit, so you can conceivably make um, a, okay, so a better could, return on right, Do the math here. So you, <laughs> you could actually more than... You could almost triple your earnings. You could more than triple your earnings. If you eliminate yeah. it. They're not going to do that. They're, no. they're going to still subsidize shipping, but what they're going to do is they're going to make it so that perhaps you get a, a slight discount or, you know, for instance, you can use your, your Prime membership and get certain benefits in the stores. Well, this sounds like they've got to invest a lot of money, though, because how, how many stores does Whole Foods have? I think it's about 600. All right, so 
that's not a lot. I mean, Jen, you've been looking at other companies like Target does this, the whole idea of discounting, getting this on Target, Walmart. Um, they've got a lot more stores. They have surely more ability to bring people in than, than Whole Foods does. Well, I mean, I, I think this is what's interesting about this deal. It's almost exactly the flip of what uh, Walmart currently has right now, which is they have a huge grocery business and they have a ton of real estate. In fact, 90% of Americans live within like, I think it's like 10 miles of a Walmart. So what Walmart has been doing is when they acquired Jet last year for some $3 billion, something like that, Jet is basically saying, okay, what we want to do is, hey, Amazon customer, come here and shop online, do your virtual basket, come pick it up at a Walmart store and we'll give you a huge discount. So I think the fact that Amazon all of a sudden decided to make its biggest purchase, you know, they've been looking at grocery stores for years. This is, you know, it's not a concept that just kind of came out of nowhere. I, I think that the fact that Walmart has been heavily investing in e-commerce is a sure sign that I think Amazon is nervous and that they're looking seriously at how they can, as Rob said, they need to curtail their shipping costs. And they also need to kind of say, okay, listen, here's a point of entry, right? So, you know, maybe today it's groceries. You can pick up your groceries. Maybe tomorrow you can pick up your groceries. You can pick up, um, you know, your drugs if you if they decide to go into the pharmaceutical business. I think that they're almost like Walmart and Amazon are almost mirror images of each other and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish. So it's not just about um, shipping costs as big as that. It's about not having the physical stores, right? Although, okay, so maybe I'm betraying the fact that I live in a city and, and rarely get in a car, but driving 10 or 15 miles to pick something up to get a 5% discount when I can probably get it delivered to me in a day or two for not a great deal more money from Amazon. That's that's And I've got to pay for the, for the gas. That's that's not a big trade. Well, here's the thing. Most people are already getting in their cars, particularly not in a city like New York City, to go grocery shopping. I mean, most people are not buying their groceries online. It's, it's a pain in the neck. Have you ever used Instacart? I've used it. I've tried to use it. It is a nightmare. It's like you have to schedule these windows. Half the time it's not available when you need it. So Amazon can bring some real uh, efficiency to the system. And, and so could Walmart if they can get this thing you know, together and, and straight. So, so I think what's happening is that it's not just everyone's kind of focusing on Amazon being the, the dominant you know, monopoly. And there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of fear that they're just going to come into any industry and just utterly dominate it. And I think I think there's room for a couple of other players. I think Walmart is certainly big enough to take on Amazon, and and this is probably one way that they can do it. Right. Thanks for that, Jen, and thank you, Rob, for coming on. I suppose we've just got to wait and see which industry Amazon goes into next. You already mentioned pharmaceuticals. Was it fashion or something next? Let's, Let's wait and see. Now, actually, Rob, before you go, though, Another company that we were talking about last week and had you want to talk about, Uber has been in the news again. Travis Kalanick, the chief executive, has finally stepped down. I think this time last week we were talking about him taking a leave of absence. And I recall last week you were talking about how this leaves no one in charge at the company. Just remind us what's happening. Who, who is running Uber it right now? It leaves 14 people, a 14 number in charge God, of the company. A 14 number. <laughs> I lo- we have a to get the Latin for, for that. success. <laughs> yes, because what happened was when uh, Kalanick stepped down, he said he was going to have 14 of his people who reported to him running the company. That's heads of pretty much every major and minor division within the company. But but I want to stop you here. A lot of people have left. Yes. They don't have a CFO. They don't have a chief operating officer. They're... It just seems like every day there's some big executive leaving that company. So okay, well let's 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 try and help them out a bit here. Okay, so who do we think should run 
Uber. Now, one name we saw pop up just before we came up here was Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg. I mean, I think she pops up for everything these days. Who else do we think? Rob? I think if you want to go for the overworked executive, you definitely have to go for Jack Dorsey. He's already in charge of two companies. Why not add a third company? So he's doing Square and... and and Twitter. And Twitter, that's right. Okay, and we could add another one to that list. Maybe this is the Uber pool of CEOs, so, you know, where you're going to try and shove, sh- shove yet another thing into the back. Elon Musk was who I was thinking of. He runs Tesla, and of course they bought um, they bought SolarCity last year, and he runs SpaceX, and he wants to do the Hyperloop. Okay, so we've got the Uber pool there. What else have we got? Jen, who else do we think should, should go into this list? Well, I could see Ariana Huffington, who is a board director, who has become quite prominent in this entire uh, saga. And I can see her stepping in as like an interim CEO right. type of position and basically, you know, kind of trying to run it like she did the Huffington Post. Yeah. Well, I'm, what I'm going to throw out there is Mark Fields, who's the chief, who was the chief executive of Ford until a couple of months ago. He, of course, tried to upgrade the company, got into various um, connected car and, um, and car mobility um, ideas, including, I think he had a, a van a, a van sharing program and various other ideas. And he is used to having a controlling shareholder at his back for the Ford family, controls 40% of the vote. And I think Kalanick controls at least half the vote, we think, right? We don't know, but he controls the majority. Okay. seems to control the majority. So there's maybe some other Detroiters as well. Let's really think, of, think a bit more here, though. Uber, we, we still don't know how Uber is going to make money long term, right? So who do we put in charge of a company who, which doesn't know how, how it's going to make money? Jen, you oh, have is this the this Marissa? Early. This is the Marissa Meyer. Yeah. <laughs> this is where she comes in, right? Yeah. She's just going to run this quote-unquote investment and right. see what happens to it. Um, because it's true. What I don't know how it's going to make money. Right now it's just an app, you know, if you think of it that way. Yeah. Uh, that's in a lot of trouble. I suppose we don't want to go down the path of Elizabeth Holmes, who who, who was in charge of Theranos, which... That was probably getting a little bit too dicey, right, if we put her in charge. <laughs> yeah, the, the old board members already left, too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you, Rob Siren. <laughs> On that note, I think we'll let you go. Thanks very much. We'll be awaiting your lawyer. <laughs> Argentina has joined the Century Bond Club. The country that has the third largest economy in South America has borrowed two and three quarter billion dollars from investors, pledging to pay them back in 2117. None of the pension funds and other investment houses buying the bonds will be alive then, and nor will many, if any, of their ultimate clients. Argentina has also given us no sense of what it's using the money for, and certainly not for some hundred year project or, or longer. Tom Berkeley, our associate editor, has come up to talk about this. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Anthony. What the hell is the point of borrowing for 100 years? It's kind of like climbing Mount Everest. You do it because it's there. And in this case, the money is there for the taking for Argentina. Now, it's pretty extraordinary. This is a country that only emerged from its most recent vault uh, just three years ago, and yet it's borrowing for 100 years. Uh, it's paying up for it. I mean, this is paying almost 8% interest uh, on the bonds. That does, mind you, let's that's, that's be fair, 8% isn't a huge amount long, long term. If you think back over the past 20, 30 years, right, we're in a very low rate environment now. But 8%, like even 15 years ago, would have been seen as pretty damn cheap. Yeah, it would have been. But, you know, these are extraordinary times. You know that after the crisis. I mean, most Western governments borrow for a pittance. Uh, spreads that corporates and even most emerging markets pay is are, are low also. So, you know, in this case, 
you know, they're paying, they're doing it really as kind of a demonstration that Argentina's back. President Maurizio Macri, who has, you know, restored relations with the holdout creditors and tried to reopen Argentina for international investors and reform the economy. This is this is a more of a demonstration of purpose and, and of strength. At least so that's what it's meant to be. They're throwing a party and picking up the tap, basically. Pretty much. Now, a better question is why investors would want to buy this. Um, okay. Why do investors want to buy this? <laughs> well, on the one hand, there is long demand. You mentioned the increase in very long-term bond issuance, and we've seen countries like Mexico and Belgium uh, issue 100-year bonds. Even Brazil's Petrobras, the uh, giant oil company that has uh, plenty of governance and economic problems of its own, it has issued 100-year bonds. And simply because um, you know you can do it, there's a tremendous demand from insurance companies, pension funds, for assets that match their very long liabilities. People are living long, older and older. You need to be able to pay pensions 30, 40, 50 years into the yeah, future. But, but, that's, you don't need to pay, but you don't need to pay them 100 years in the future, right? So what, 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 what liabilities is a pension fund matching buying a 100-year bond? Well, I think here, here's where the pieces come together, because if it's going to make sense, and really given the default history of Argentina, you have to think about maybe not sticking around for 100 years, uh, you know, given the premium they're paying, the much higher interest rate they're paying than, than most other borrowers in the market, uh, you know, if you can hold on to this for 40 or 50 years, it just about makes sense. Now, the problem here yeah, is that, that... You mean that, that if I put my money down on this, then 40 or 50 years, if I, you know, it would, it would, I'd get enough money back to pay for the last vestiges of my, my, my um, retirement home? Or Well, the assumption is e- even if they default, there'd, there'd be some kind of claim. It wouldn't be a total default. It wouldn't be a 100% wipeout. There'd be some whether it's 30%, 50%. You know, most governments that default, they do they do pay something on their bonds. So th- there is that thought. I mean, the question here, though, is, or, or the, the dilemma for investors is, th- that's that's a long-term view. Now, a bond, th- this bond, if even if you hold it to a little more than 20 years and Argentina defaults because of the high interest rate, it'll pay more than a U.S. Treasury. But, you know, you don't buy Argentina to just beat U.S. Treasuries yeah. by a couple of basis points and take uh, default risk. And the, this is a country that's defaulted eight times in 200 years. That's once every 25 years. And three of those defaults have been in the last 35 years. So it's not as if this is a, a, a relic of the past. This is a very recurring political problem for Argentina. So what does this mean then for, I mean, investors are looking at this. I get what you're saying. Uh, whatever assets is they want to match, they also are desperate for yield, even with um, interest rates going up slightly. But you know, if I look back over just recent history over the past 10, 15, 20 years, I see country after country uh, that has issued money, so whether it's Russia, when Ukraine defaulted within a year of issuing its first ever euro bond. Like you said, Argentina's gone bust three times. And I've always, always really had the view that bondholders can be pretty dozy, but this strikes me as absolutely nuts. Well, uh, you know, there, <laughs> I, I wouldn't really, I mean, nuts, it's hard to say, but there, there clearly is... The record suggests that investors are taking a lot of risk with this. And the, the only idea that they have is, frankly, in a low-return world, if someone's giving me 8%, I will take that risk. Right. One of the problems here, most of these bonds, that people tend to sock them away and hold them. That goes into pension funds and insurance companies. There are quotes out there on the market, but there's really not a lot of trading in Mexico's 30-year bond. So if there's a real problem in five or 10 years' time or even two years' time, the idea that you're going to be able to call up your broker and get out of this in a... Uh, nice and smoothly is um, is a bit ambitious. Jump on the bandwagon. Well, there have been a few, and like I said, there have been a few corporates that have stepped into the space. And for entities that have a good credit rating, 
mind you, you know, Argentina's single B, that's w deep in a junk territory. But for people with good credit ratings or, in, or institutions or governments with good credit ratings, it might make sense. Steve Mnuchin, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, has said they're examining the idea of going into very long bonds, maybe 50 years or 100. And, and what's the longest? The, the U.S. US Treasury's right never issued more than 30 years in the okay. past. And it took a hiatus from that for a while in the early part of the century, right? It did. It did. So whether, whether or not they'll actually do it, I, I, I don't know. I think it'd still be a, a bit of a long shot. I tell you, the one, the one place where I could, suppose it could make sense is in infrastructure. And actually, one company that did it already, DC Water, Washington's um, water company, did a 30-year so-called green bond. Let's leave aside whether these things are green or not. But the whole point behind that was, look, we, have, we need to put in pipes and other infrastructure that may well last only 500 years. So in that respect, I can see a much more of a correlation between what the money is for and uh, the duration. Definitely. Maybe, maybe got a, that you, could be done elsewhere. It could. You've, you've got a fixed purpose. You've got a, a long-lived asset that's going to have some kind of revenue stream from it to pay off the interest on the bonds. Presumably, this is in some kind of a jurisdiction or country that has a reasonable record of you know, rule of law and not expropriating people. And by, by all means, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, whether or not Argentina you know, fits into that category, it's, um, it's a bit of a stretch. But like I say, when there's money out there, People tend to take it. Okay, so I think the lesson from this for, from, from us individual investors is don't rush out and buy these Argentine bonds just yet. Tom, thanks for coming on. Great to see you. Thank you. Next up, we're going to hand the controls over to our colleagues in Asia. Up for discussion is Chinese insurer Anbang, including the fact that its chairman has been detained by Chinese authorities. Hello from Hong Kong. I'm Pete Sweeney, Asia editor of Breaking Views, and I'm here with Asia finance editor Quentin Webb. We're here talking about a very exciting recent story in China, the story of Anbang Insurance. Um, this little-known company has leaped into the headlines recently with big acquisitions. Um, Waldo Fristoria trying to buy Starwood Hotels. Um, now its chairman is incommunicado at best, arrested at worst. Um, and there are reports of stress um, in banks related to the enormous amount of, of business that this, this company does. Um, Quentin, what's going on and how did we get here? Um, well, so we have an extraordinary situation where the chairman of this big company has been taken away apparently by the authorities. The company has grown from almost nothing a few years ago into being a very big player, $300 billion roughly of assets, um, and it has done that by selling these high-yielding insurance products, which actually, although they say insurance on the label, look really more like investment products. Um, so this ties into all kinds of things in China. It ties into kind of shadow banking, the growth of systemic risk. Um, the development of these kind of corporate raiders and also seemingly kind of factional power struggles ahead of um, a big set-piece political event later in the year. So in terms of inside China, where did this come from? I mean, Anbang is not at least visibly collapsing. This isn't the case of like a, a Giddick or, or you know, a solar power company, any of these stress industries where the company appears to be going out of business and there's a panic. They, they made some high-profile bids, they got a bunch of headlines, and now this guy is gone and there's all this stress. It, it, what's going on in the, in the political background here? Well, I think one thing that's happened is that the insurance industry has gone in a few short years from being a sleepy backwater into being a kind of very aggressive player in the Chinese financial markets. 
um, they've amassed a lot of assets quickly and they've used the money that they have raised from selling investment style products in some cases to mount these kind of very aggressive raids on listed public companies and that has put people's noses out of joint and and that by by people i mean people at the top of the party people at the top of the regulatory apparatus right so the the chief insurance regulator just lost his job um, the securities regulator has been screaming and yelling about barbarians and goblins these raiders but i mean fundamentally you know is this about trying to fix up the market or is this about elite power politics um, I'm not sure in China often where one ends and the other begins, <laughs> to be honest with you. And you may recall last year there was discussion about whether Anbang could possibly list one of its key units abroad. And at that point, people were worrying about the prospect of that because it wasn't clear really who owns Anbang, and it still isn't really clear. They say they have institutional and individual owners, people who've all kind of followed the appropriate rules and regulations, um, a New York Times investigation last year found some very strange owners, including a lot of people who seem to be relatives of the chairman back in his home province. Um, so when you have situations like that and you also have these high-level connections, so the chairman married a granddaughter of uh, former Supreme Leader Deng Xiaoping, you know, where the kind of purely political and the purely financial crossover is never quite clear to me. Right. Well, there's been a series of these things. There's the upcoming leadership, the Congress in the fall. So there's been a fair amount of heads rolling and, and exciting headlines. But for foreign investors, obviously, the big question is, you know, all this time, everybody's been watching China as like the Lehman moment, you know, is this the finally going to provoke the liquidity crisis, all this debt out there? I mean, yes or no, is this potentially a font of systemic risk for China or an interesting story about a flamboyant company? I think it's more of the latter. I think there is one interesting implication to take away from this, which is that it seems like the official tolerance for these kind of flamboyant foreign takeovers is probably at breaking point. Uh, Anbang, I think, stuck its head rather far above the parapet with some of these big splashy deals and attempted deals Overseas, and I'm pretty sure that, as well as the particulars of the insurance industry, is one of the things that brought it to official attention. All right. Thanks. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co hosts, Jen Sabre and in Hong Kong, Peter Sweeney, as well as our guests, Rob Siren, Quentin Webb, and Tom Berkeley. Our producers this week are Bethel Habsey and Andrew D'Antonio, and I'd like to express our gratitude to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check out the commentary you pen every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We'll be back next week and would love you to listen in again. Thanks for joining us.